Thank you for coming. Hope you're having a good holiday weekend. I was going to preach on the evils of skipping church on a holiday weekend, but I decided this might be the opposite crowd that needs to hear that. So I threw that sermon in the trash and got something else. I'm totally joking. Yeah, we're going to have a good time. So James 1, 2 to 4, probably one you could all recite by memory. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When I fall into various trials, I decide that maybe patience isn't all that important. <laughs> maybe I don't need patience. God will just forego this one. All right. <laughs> James says the testing of our faith produces patience. Be happy when trouble comes because the testing of our faith produces patience. Patience must be something that's pretty valuable if we're supposed to be happy when there's trouble coming. I just want to point out this phrase, the testing of our faith. Peter mentions the same thing. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, be very happy when troubles come your way, because like gold that is purified in the fire, your faith is being purified, and our faith is more valuable than gold, because Jesus, when he returns, will give us praise and honor and glory for our faith. Absolutely amazing. So Peter again uses this phrase, testing, in regard to our faith, and he says that our faith is more valuable than gold that's been put through the fire. So I suppose most of you know your basic metal sciences, but you, when they mine the metal out of the ground, it's full of dirt and other stuff, and to make pure gold or pure metal of any sort, you have to melt it down, and all the impurities float to the top of the molten metal, and they skim that off. It's called the dross. They skim off the dirt stuff that they don't want, and you're left with pure gold or pure silver or pure whatever. On a morning, early, early, early morning this week, the Lord dropped these two scriptures and this YouTube video that I had seen years ago. Uh, just, boom, just dropped it in my spirit. And so I'm going to show you this video. It is not uh, refining gold. It's actually refining iron. And what it is is, it's a, it's a National Geographic television episode of how the ancient Japanese made samurai swords. I need you to have this in your mind as we go through the rest of this the topic in the scriptures this morning that the, the refiner's fire, how they melt the metal and purify it and then, and then hammer it out into the sword and make it usable and strong and flexible and so on. So I, I, go, I would guess that most of you probably have some idea about this, but... We're going to watch a couple of different segments of this for six or eight minutes here of this video, complete with cheesy samurai reenactment and everything. Uh, anyway, but we're going to watch them forge the raw iron into purified steel, and then we're going to watch the blacksmiths hammer the steel out into the raw blade. And as we watch this, remember that you are the metal and God is the smith. Okay. Japanese swordmakers perfected this art hundreds of years ago. 
heating to over 1,000 degrees centigrade, combines hard steel and soft iron into a bimetallic blade. Very interestingly, this hacksaw blade is labelled as being bimetallic, and this has the same features that you would find in a thousand-year-old Japanese sword blade. By the end of the second day, the furnace has already eaten up two-thirds of 26 tonnes or so of charcoal and iron sand. The furnace is like a human being. We can think of the iron and coal as food. We feed her, she digests it, so that she will bear good tamahagane. For a man in his 70s, Kihara maintains an incredible passion for a tough job. Slowly, the hot iron eats away the walls of the furnace. Beneath it lies a chamber three meters deep. Any moisture seeping in from the ground would lower the temperature, ruining the precious steel. They would have to start all over again. Layers of ash and charcoal raise the furnace above ground, and two ventilation channels flank either side. At temperatures of over 1,000 degrees, any impurities sink to the bottom of the chamber, leaving behind the pure steel. With no modern tools to guide him, Master Kihara will listen to the noise of the fire. After 36 hours of feeding the voracious fire, everyone is exhausted. There's more than just this new batch of steel at stake. In their own way, these men work to keep an old culture from going extinct. On the morning of the fourth day, he decides it's time to break up the furnace. I could see the core. It looks good. There's a big relief. I'm happy. But no one can afford to relax yet. Until they get the steel out, there's no way of knowing if it's samurai sword grade or only good enough for knives and forks. Ten men have worked continuously for three days and nights. But has the chemical reaction between iron and carbon inside the furnace worked to forge steel good enough to make one of the world's finest swords? It's a tense time as the walls of the furnace come down, leaving behind a blistering mass that looks like molten lava. It took around 26 tons of iron ore and charcoal to produce this crude steel they call tamahagane. If it's of the right grade, it could fetch around $50,000, which is around 50 times more expensive than ordinary steel. The furnace master, Kihara Akira, must now choose which bits are good enough to go to the sword maker. It all comes down to the carbon content of the steel. Too little carbon and the finished sword could be soft, too much and it could end up brittle. 
the areas along the sides of the block where sufficient oxidation has occurred offer the best prospects. At the University of Leeds in the UK, Dr. Stephen Turnbull specializes in samurai history. One remarkable thing about samurai swords is none of the great swordsmiths could probably write down what it was about the composition of the steel he was using that was so good, but somehow they got it right. And so that, combined with the way the sword was used, set a standard of perfection that was to last for centuries. It's like when your child is born, it was worth waiting for. I'm very happy. Thank you. Having made his selection, the choice pieces of the Tamahagane are put to the test in Sakurai, a small town in the middle of Japan, 50 kilometers from Kyoto. Sakurai is home to one of Japan's most renowned swordsmiths, Gasan Sadatoshi, whose family has been swordsmiths for 800 years. The pieces of raw steel arrive from the smelters 300 kilometers away. Together with his son and assistant, Gasan carefully examines the Tamahagane to see if it is up to scratch for his next sword. He's looking for heavy pieces with a bright silver color. Any bits that are grayish black and coarse are rejected. Forging of this new katana will take three men more than three months to complete. Heat from the forge and constant hammering flatten the pieces into the building blocks of the new weapon under Gassan's watchful and highly trained eye. I can see the amount of carbonization on the edges of these little pieces. This is very important when choosing the right pieces for the proper steel. The selected pieces then get wrapped in paper and a light covering of clay and ash to prevent oxidation. Reheating to 1300 degrees centigrade prepares the steel for hammering, which welds all the pieces into one. They have to work quickly before the temperature drops, making the steel impossible to work with. The hammering also drives out any remaining impurities. The finished product will weigh almost 50% less than the raw materials. The embryo of the katana finally takes shape as a single welded block. But not until it is repeatedly folded and beaten to spread the carbon content more evenly will the metal for the sword really start to come into its own. What this process of folding really involves is mixing the iron and steel so that the block is uniform, more or less, throughout its whole structure. All done by hand, the process is impressively accurate. The carbon content ends up at a more or less uniform 0.7% throughout the block. Gassan gauges the concentration of carbon by the color of the steel. A dozen or more folds creates over 5,000 individual layers per one centimeter of steel. It is these layers that produce a pattern called the yihada, the skin of the metal. Slowly the layered block takes shape as a weapon fit for a samurai warrior.
If you want to see the cheesy reenactments, you can go to YouTube and watch it yourself. Even though that's steel and the Bible example is gold, it's the same science. You have to heat metal up to purify it and to get it just the right temperature to where it's usable. And with gold, it's whatever it is, and that's, that's, that's the working of steel. But as, as we watch that, I want to point out some things that you saw that, you, that I just want to highlight, is that when the forgers are making the steel, when they're melting the raw steel down into uh, the raw iron into steel and mixing it with the carbon and getting it just right, is they said that if they cook it too hot or too long, then it gets brittle, and you can't use it for a sword because it'll shatter and it's hard like cast iron. If they don't cook it long enough or it gets too cool, then it's too soft and it won't hold an edge. It can't be sharpened. It's got to be just flexible and hard enough to hold an edge but not break. Remember, God is the smith and we are the metal. He knows exactly where to take us to to make us usable but not broken. When they pulled the, the clay furnace apart and undug all the charcoal and got the steel out of there, it doesn't look like much. It looks like a burned log, really, all covered with black soot. But it's 50 times more valuable than normal steel. I said it doesn't look like much, but the smith knows what it is. God is the smith and you are the metal. Some of you have lived through something. You thought, man, that I, I'm really burned. I'm not much. I'm ruined. I don't look like much. That did me in, whatever. And God's like, no, no, I don't look on the outside. I know what's on the inside. And I know this heart is 50 times more valuable than average because I heated this one up just perfect. Then, after they get it out of the fire and the, cool, then they chunk it up and they sell the chunks to the smith, the swordsmith, that actually make it into a sword. And so the poor iron has the steel has gone from the fire. Now it's under the hammer. You are the metal. God is the smith. <laughs> God. Do you get it? It takes three men three months to make one raw sword blade. Three men, three months of hammering, folding and folding and folding and folding and hammering out the impurities. And I don't even know how it would work, but you, did you catch? They said that the hammering purifies the metal even more than the fire did, and it weighs half of what it did after they're done hammering because of the whatever is driven out of the metal. And then in the part that we can't watch because we don't have time, but... Then the swordsmiths, they get the raw blade out, and then they send it to a polisher, sharpener guy, who spends a month grinding it with a stone. There's all these different stones that it, his craft is so exacting. He has several different stones. They said that some of them cost thousands of dollars for a little chunk. And, and he will polish the sword to a, a mirror shine and razor sharpness. And that skill is so exact that that's, all he does. We are the metal. God is the smith. We go from the fire to the hammer to being ground with rocks. <laughs> and we think it's the, it's the trials of life, it's the troubles, and God says, no, I'm producing in you 
faith that is more valuable and beautiful than gold. Philippians 3, 8 through 11, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, so that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I don't care about anything else. I will lose everything. I will give up everything. I don't want any of my own righteousness. I don't want my name. I don't want my reputation is the context of this verse. He says, all I want is to know Jesus. And how does he say that? Do we do that? Through suffering. Through trials and problems. It's how we know Jesus. Paul says that I want to know Jesus and the power of the fellowship of his suffering so that I can know his power and his resurrection. So James says, calls our problems in life the testing of our faith. Peter says that our problems in life should make us happy because our faith is being refined like gold in a furnace. And Paul says here in Philippians 3 that the, the way to know Jesus is through suffering. But I know, and you know, people who have suffered terrible stuff. And they're not like Jesus at all. They're bitter. They're alcoholics. They're whatever. Gossips, sex addicts, whatever. They do turn to other stuff. So the problems of life, what James calls our trials, what Peter calls our tribulations, are not the testing of our faith. Because Everybody has those, whether they have faith or not. Yes? Saved or unsaved, people in the church or the world, everybody's got problems, and we've all got the same problems. Everybody at some point in life has aches and pains or diseases, marriage problems, kid problems, finance problems, a bad boss. Those are not the testing of our faith. Because the world's people live through those too. And there's people in the church who claim to know God and follow Jesus. And when they go through trouble, you know they're not behaving like Jesus. They're angry or they're gossiping or they're turning to something else for relief. Food or sex or alcohol or whatever. So what is the testing of our faith then? If it's Because James and Peter and Paul say that it is. It's when we suffer or go through problems. But the testing of our faith is actually when our faith is tested. Not when we have a problem. Because everybody has problems. The test is, are you going to respond like Jesus? There's the test. Because everybody's got problems. The testing of our faith is, are we actually going to have faith? That's the fire of the furnace. Because God is not the author of our problems. He's the author of our faith. So God, yes, God is the smith and he's turning up the heat and he is purifying us, but he doesn't do it through our problems. He does it by our conscience and the Holy Spirit and the word of God, which says, all right, now you have been abandoned by your spouse or you have been rejected by your kid or you have financial problems or you have this health problem. How are you going to respond? There's the fire. Come on. Troubles are not the testing of our faith because people without faith still have troubles. 
The testing of our faith is, are we actually going to have faith? Are we going to respond in obedience to the Word of God? Are we going to be like Jesus? When we encounter trouble or suffering or sickness or attack or accusation or death or sin, are we going to respond with faith and patience and peace and joy and forgiveness and graciousness and thus be like Jesus and know Christ, as Paul says here? Or are we going to respond with complaining and anger and unforgiveness, bitterness, a Facebook rant, sarcasm, helplessness, quitting, turning to alcohol or food or sex or entertainment just to veg out? Are we going to fight for ourselves because all of that negates any maturity or purification in Christ? We can claim to be Christians, but if we respond to problems the same way the world's people do, then we will never grow up in Christ. We will never be purified in the fire. The fire comes from, I have this problem and I have this promise and I live in the tension of those two and it burns me. People, years ago more so, uh, people asked me, because I was a pastor at such a young age, it's only 33, and because I didn't go to Bible school and have some degree and was officially qualified, I got questions years ago quite often from other pastors and from people in the church and so on. How did you get the wisdom that you have beyond your years? Like you, you know, Older people told me, you know things you shouldn't know yet. That was years ago. Nobody says that anymore. Maybe I've, maybe I've dumbed down. I don't know. But people would ask me that in various ways and various settings. And like, how, did, how did you do this? And I've always jokingly said, everything I know I learned from Sarah. That's my wife. But I really mean it because if I learned anything about Jesus, if I had any maturity in the spirit at 33, it was because of our marriage problem. We've never hidden it from you at all that first 13 years of our marriage were very hard. We pushed through whatever happened two or three years ago, and we are way more at peace and in love and in unity than we have ever been. It was awesome. We are so different than what it was. We would have a disagreement, an argument. I'd be mad at her about something she did, or she'd be mad about at me about something I didn't do. You know how it goes. Come on, you know how it goes. God says, God's word says, if you're married, you're going to have trouble. So it's a promise. And I would go to the bed, or I'd go out to the woodshed and chop wood, or I'd go for a drive or whatever, and I would want to, God, fix her. And never, ever, ever once in 17 and three quarters years has he ever let me talk about what Sarah did wrong. It was always about what I did wrong. The very first prophecy before we were married, I think probably before Sarah and I were even dating, the first prophecy of my life, and I knew I was getting a prophecy. You know how some people can just say something and you know you just heard from God, but it was sort of an offhand comment. It just happened. But but then there's other times where the person is intending to deliver the word of the Lord to you. Okay, So this is the first time where I was in a formal setting where there was prophecy happening. And my pastor in Arkansas laid hands on me and he said, God will teach you how to be a father and Jesus will teach you how to be a husband. So when Sarah, I'd be upset with Sarah or she's upset with me or there's some problem to solve or whatever, always, 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 I return to that prophecy 
Jesus will teach me how to be a husband. So my question was that he would never let me leave. He never, ever once let me leave it. Was, how does Jesus treat his bride? <sighs> oh, Jesus, not again. Please. In the process of teaching me how to husband Sarah and how to love her, I didn't just... God wasn't just interested in making our marriage work. I learned who Jesus is and how he loves us by how he expected me to treat her. Whatever maturing happened in me from 23 and 24 when we were married to 33 when I became a pastor and people were asking me this, I, I, well, I made it, I turned it into a joke, but it really wasn't. It was like, well, I learned about God by learning how to love my wife and her vice versa she certainly I don't mean that in any way was that she was the source of our problems it's just that's what I had to learn in that situation the marriage problem is not the testing of my faith because everybody who's married has fights or arguments or problems from time to time the testing of my faith is, am I going to respond like Jesus or am I going to leave? Am I going to run away? Am I going to make her fix the problem and I'm not going to humble myself? Or am I going to let God burn me? Am I going to let him destroy my pride, burn my selfishness, humble me to the point where I will apologize even though two days ago I didn't think I did anything wrong? and so on. Husbands, you can do that. Wives, your question is, how am I supposed to treat Jesus? You're the church. Your husband is Jesus. Treat him like he's Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, treat your wife like you are Jesus. He would treat his bride. If we would all do that, things would be pretty good. I learned what I learned through suffering through going through the problem, but choosing, certainly not saying I did it right every time, but over time, <laughs> trying, as best I know, consistently choosing the burn instead of quitting or running away or making her do it. So as I said before, we all know people who've lived through some tragedy of death or divorce or betrayal or whatever and and they haven't turned out like Jesus because the trial is not the testing of our faith the testing of our faith is actually are we going to have faith and allow God to test it he's not authoring the troubles but since the troubles come to everyone God's burn is since it's here Will you let me teach you something? Since it's here, will you let me purify you? Since this is how your husband or your dad or your boss or your kid is treating you anyway, let me talk with you about that. And I can show you some things in you that you can fix and, and we'll, we'll heat things up and bring them out. Amen, Mitch. Good preaching. This is awesome. God is not the author of our problems, but he is the author of our faith. And when he is testing our faith, it is 
are you going to have faith? Are you going to choose depression, hopelessness? Are you going to choose faith? Are you going to run or are you going to choose endurance and long-suffering patience? Are you going to choose anger or alcohol or lust? Or are you going to choose self-control in the face of overwhelming temptation? That's where the faith test comes from. And then it's not just the trials of life that God uses to purify us and heat us up because we can voluntarily choose some things. And by that I mean like fasting, like giving up our money to support a missionary or time or serving our church or our pastor or taking care of an elderly neighbor or foster parenting or some way in which you love somebody that you wouldn't have to, but you choose to love a difficult person and take care of them because they need saved. You can embrace self-sacrifice. You can embrace that quote-unquote suffering and take those on for the sake of Jesus. And I guarantee you, you will, you will know him. And I guarantee you, it will bring your flesh to the surface so that God can burn that right off. So I've told you before, that my main prayer for my kids, the deepest prayer of my heart for my kids, is that they not be just good people. I don't want to raise good kids who go to church, grow up, marry a good person, and raise my grandkids in church. If that's all that happens, I am a total failure. I want my kids to know God for themselves, and not because... They only know right and wrong or because they only know that their mom and dad are godly people and that mom and dad taught them the Bible stories. I want them to burn with holiness and passion and love for God. And I pray that repeatedly, not every day, but many days. I pray that for my kids. And I know that I'm praying, what I'm praying can only come through their suffering. Because an easy life does not produce holy fire. It produces selfishness. It would be completely ignorant of me to think that they can live a life without suffering anyway. Something will come. Some people's main battle is a health problem. Some people's main battle is their marriage. Some people's main battle is their kids. Some people's main battle is a financial issue or whatever. Troubles will come. So I'm not certainly not praying for God to send trouble to my kids so that they'll get closer to him. That is not at all what I mean. It's going to come anyway. What I am praying is the same thing that Jesus said he would pray for Peter. He said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I have prayed that your faith will not fail. What I'm, on, what I'm actually praying for my kids is that, God, I know the only way that they can know you is if they have to forgive and they have to love and they have to have faith. So... When those times come, reveal yourself to them. Be close. Don't let their faith fail. Make it real. Don't let them live a religious life and just be a good American citizen, churchgoer. It has to come through a real test of faith, and I know that. Certainly not praying for problems. That's just foolishness. But it would be total foolishness to believe that it won't happen.
So, Lord, when it does, burn their hearts. Brand them with your signet ring. And I pray the same thing for you. <laughs> Some of you are like, okay, Mitch, your prayers are working a little well. You can stop praying that for a couple of weeks. My faith is being tested. Thank you very much. I do not want a church of churchgoers. I do not want religious assembly on Sunday morning that we do because it's the routine. I want a group of people who burn for truth and love and holiness, who love Jesus, and we're willing to die for him. And even though we, on, from the outside, we may not look like a fancy, rich church who's got all our programs together and all our relationships are cool and everything is all right. We may actually, in, compared to other churches, be look like the burned log. But on the inside, we're probably worth more than average. <laughs> I mean it. We may not look like much, but God knows what's under our, all that charcoal. <laughs> Like these people have been through the fire and they received it and they let me burn them. And I didn't make it too hot, but I didn't quit early either. And they're strong and they're sharp and they're flexible, and they're useful, and they're beautiful, and they're valuable. I said, beautiful and valuable. Even though we may look black and burned on the outside, <laughs> we're beautiful and valuable. Thank you, Jesus, for your promise. Let's start at the beginning. Lord, thank you for your grace to even have faith. Or we could not have even have our faith without your grace. But you chose us. You called us. You revealed yourself to us. You called us out of the world, out of darkness, into your marvelous kingdom of light. Lord, and we said yes to you, and then you purify our faith with fire like gold, because faith is worth so much more than gold. We thank you for your holy fire. Thank you for your truthful fire. Thank you for your purifying fire. Thank you for your correcting fire. And Lord, when you're done with the fire, we submit to your hammer. You beat us into shape. You make us useful and beautiful instead of just raw. And then you sharpen us as iron sharpens iron. You make us beautiful and valuable and useful for your purposes. You aren't being cruel. You aren't tormenting us. You haven't forgotten. You're not standing by uncaring while we live through troubles. Lord, we will, more than anything else, we want to know you and to be like you. We want to be with you for eternity. We trust that you are the master smith. You know exactly where to take us. That will purify us, but not break us. Forgive us when we have complained, when we have run away when we've given up or quit. 
when we've turned to other things for comfort instead of you? Forgive us when we have blamed you and thought that you were too hot for us to handle. You were giving us too much. Lord, we trust you. We submit to you. We love you. Thank you for purifying our hearts getting rid of the dross of our flesh, selfishness and sin. Thank you for making us beautiful and valuable and useful.